0: Good evening. This is a wonderful, wonderful night at the Central Library of the Annie Pratt Free Library. This is about, I think you can't get more special than tonight, and especially for a librarian, I have to tell you. We are honored to be part of the kickoff celebration for Black Classic Press 35 years. And this celebration is going to go on and on, and we're starting it off with a bang. We are so excited to welcome our special guest. I got a chance to just tell him how much his support has meant to all of us. He is the perfect writer to celebrate this anniversary, and we are delighted to welcome him back to Baltimore. You know who he is the author, Walter Mosley. You should know, and I'm sure many of you do, he is a longtime supporter of black independent publishing, and we appreciate everything that has made it possible for us to be here tonight. And I thank all of you for taking your time. None of these events that we have here at the Pratt could be possible without donors and friends like you, and readers. That's another reason why librarians are excited. Mr. Mosley's books helped prove that everybody loves to read. And librarians had to order books and keep ordering books. And it had to go into paperback. And for librarians, that is it. And so thank you for being a reader. Now, you should know that this city, you know, we have a lot of great leadership. But tonight, we were called. By the mayor of the city, who heard that Mr. Mosley was coming. Now, she comes to other things, you know. She's here, she supports us. She was right on it when we opened the uh, Pennsylvania Avenue branch and the e reader. She was the first to download all of that. But when she heard that Mr. Mosley was there, she said, Do you think I could come by? Say a few words. And then she, Downloaded his books, and she's been listening to him. So please welcome to the Central Library one of his biggest fans, the mayor of this city, Mayor Stephanie Rawling Blake.
1: Good evening, everyone. I know that we are excited to host Mr. Mosley here in Baltimore. I told him that he should know that he has legions of fans in Baltimore. And if New York ever gets too unfriendly for you, you can always come to Baltimore. We will welcome you with open arms. So I want to thank uh, Dr. Hayden for everything I, every time I talked about uh, Dr. Hayden you can't talk about her without smiling I said she's the only one besides my aunt of course who made being a librarian hip and cool <laughs> my aunt was a librarian in New York and I want to congratulate where did Paul go? I want to, yes, there you are in your bright yellow, congratulate you on 35 years. And I want to thank all of the patrons who are here as well. So it's my honor to be here as mayor, but as a reader and a fan of Walter Mosley, uh, you know, I'm, I, every time I speak and I'm at a library event, I have to give my plug for the, uh, the e-reader program. Does anyone download books from the e-reader? It's wonderful. Yes, from the library. Yes. And so I recently um, was, my latest one was Always Outnumbered, Always Outgunned. Anybody read that? And sometimes I get so busy, the only way I can get through a book is to do a book on tape, and I had to thank Mr. Uh, Mosley for having uh, Paul Winfield do the voice for that. I said, I've listened to it three times. I can't get enough. I mean, his words are so perfectly strung together. And then with that voice, I said, I could just read, o- I mean, listen over and over again. So I had to come to say, thank you. Thank you for adding so much color and vibrancy and interest and Creating, I know, a generation of, a neat, you know, not saying because you've been so prolific for so long, but that my generation has appreciated uh, your reading, reading and, and being involved with you as an evolving author. So I want to commend the library for bringing great authors like Walter Mosley to Baltimore for enriching the lives of all Baltimoreans uh, by giving us an opportunity to experience the library in different ways to interact with artists uh, who are sharing their talents and, and, like I said, making our world a better place. So thank you uh, for all that you do. I want to thank the Pratt for having great authors available. And again, I want to congratulate Black uh, Classic Press on their 35th anniversary. I know... Um, that what you've done wasn't easy, and the road was not uh, always smooth, but to get to 35 years is a tremendous accomplishment, and you've done so much to support African-American writers, not only in Baltimore, but across the country. And for that, I want to thank you very, very much and congratulate you. So thank you all very much, and have a wonderful evening.
0: Madam Mayor, and I do have to give a shout out to your aunt because when I first got here, she made sure that she introduced herself to me and she's been watching me ever since. So and she's smiling now. she's smiling. I also want to let you know that we were delighted to have with us um, the owner of Darker Than Blue. Have any of you been to that restaurant? Mr. Casey Jenkins? I only have one bone to pick with him. There were no sweet potato biscuits. But he's going to work on that. So thank you. And now the person who is going to introduce our special guest, who you saw that we had to keep telling him, Paul, they're talking about you. Paul, come on. Come on. Please, Mr. Paul Coates.
2: Wow. We're all here for Walter's reading, okay? Um, We're celebrating 35 years of Black Classic Pressing. We're going to be doing it for the whole year, but tonight really is Walter Mosley. So I I just have a few comments um, before Walter reads. I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing him, because Walter is like Walter got Baltimore all tattooed all over him, he's he's like from here and people know him very very well. This is this is your twelfth city. This is the twelfth city on Walter's tour, which tour and books y'all can be very very grueling business. But he looks good, and I told him I told him that tonight we were gonna give him some love, close the tour down. Buy up all the books that we have and send him back to New York just smiling, okay? So look, a, a couple of comments. I, I want to first begin by introducing Natalie Stokes-Peters, and, and please give Natalie a hand. I'm going to tell y'all why. <laughs> I'll tell y'all why. <laughs> because probably for the last, most of the last 10 years, Natalie is the person who's done all the work at Black Classic Press, okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, she, she really is the person, like when, when I'm able to travel with Walter or just uh, be with him reading his books and things like that, Natalie is back there working. She's really kept the press going and she's here right now to make sure that I don't screw up. Okay? She's, she's taking some notes. So, it's, I only have a few things to do, but I really want to make sure that I do them. And um, if I miss them, she's going to help me with them. First of all, we really want to uh, thank the mayor, thank um, Pratt Library uh, for uh, hosting and co-hosting this and making this beautiful venue. I've been in this library, uh, gosh, I interned in this library 30 years ago as an intern before going to library school, but I've never seen it more beautiful than tonight, Paula, so thank you. And again, I, I want to acknowledge the mayor and the mayor's mother. Um, Walter and I were together doing one of the books that, that he published with us. He paid for that tour, too. He took me along and paid for the tour. It was his book, and he paid for it. But when, when we were in Chicago, we actually met um, Pete, the mayor's uh, father, who, I've known, who I knew for a long, long time. And we ran into each other in this hotel. And we were very surprised to see each other. It was, it was a pretty exclusive hotel. And we were very surprised to see each other there. And I was surprised to see Pete in such good health at the time because he was in recovery at that time. And he said, well, what are you doing here? I said, what are you doing here? I thought you were checked out. <laughs> And we laughed. And I said, well, I'm here with Walter Mosley. He said, Walter Mosley, I got to meet him. I got to meet him. So the mayor speaks of her generation. I just want everyone to know that she get it honestly. It came from the father, okay? The father was a lover of, of your works, as I've told you, Walter. So I just want to acknowledge Pete Rawlins. And he's up in the house with his daughters and his wife. So all of, this, all of this is acknowledgement. We've, we've already acknowledged Casey Jenkins, who did, a wonderful, who did a wonderful, wonderful reception upstairs. And I have to mention that because, see, everybody was invited to that reception that was on our mailing list, that was on our Facebook page. If you hit that, you got into the reception. And I'm saying that because on your seat, you should have a card that will help you get on the mailing list. We're going to, this whole year, we're going to be doing small things, large things, and we really want everyone to come out. We're going to be celebrating black black literature. We're going to be celebrating black writing and black writers and black publishers this year. So please use the card that's in your packet to fill out. You'll also see a flyer in there for Eddie Conway. Eddie Conway has been a a long inspiration for Black Classic Press. As many of you know, we came out of the Black Panther Party together. Eddie has done 43 years, and we're very, very close to bringing him out of that jail this year. So I'm asking <clears throat> <clears throat> legally bringing him out of that jail, okay? <laughs> Let's be clear. Uh, but it looks like we're very close this year, and so we, we ask for your support. Um, well, someone? Oh, oh, yeah, we can't forget that. We're so uh, honored to be here. One of the things when when we said we were coming in to celebrate, uh, one of the the things we decided to do, Carla, we we don't have it here, but what we decided to do is make sure that the Pratt Library has all of the books that we've printed um, over the last 35 years. So so we did get a list. We we did get a list from um, Vivian Fisher of the books that you have in your collections, the ones you don't have in your collections. What we're going to do is actually imprint those books so that each book will have a dedicated page in it um, to the library, okay? So I just want to let you know that we are doing that. Good, 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 good. good. With that, that's housekeeping, y'all. That's that's really all it is. We're going to bring Walter Mosley up. With that. And Walter, can you come come up and join me, please? This is going to be short. I can get long winded when I'm talking about Walter, okay? (laughs) Um, But this is going to be short. Walter and I got together uh, in 1990. 1995. Yeah, 1995, I believe it was, first. Um, He didn't know me from Adam. But he had been at a conference, and he decided to... He decided that he wanted to invest in black publishing, independent publishing. And so he had a book called Gone Fishing. And after a while, after a process of talking with him... Uh, we agreed that Black Classic Press would be the publisher of that, of that book. The process of publishing was rich, and the process of... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm distinguishing the process of publishing from the profit of publishing. The process of publishing was rich, okay? And throughout it all, Walter was there as an advocate for this small press. I remember we were in W.W. Norton, And Norton, I I have to tell this one. Norton really wanted, it was Walter's publisher, and they really wanted to control Walter. And so they were going along with him, giving this book to a a little black press. And so they were talking about how much money they could help us with and what have you. And Walter did a thing. Now, I'm I'm happy because they're coming up with money, you know. But Walter got in there and Walter said, we don't need your money. We don't need your money. Paul's going to publish this book. If we have to stand on the corner with tin cans begging the money, Paul's going to publish this book. And I looked over at him. (laughs) I I was happy. I was sad and I was happy at the same time. But 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 his 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 insight and his understanding of publishing in that moment, his ability to call the shot when I didn't really know what was happening in the room because they were really trying to control the process. And Wallace said, "No, I gave this book to Black Classic Press because I wanted a black press to have the experience, the full total experience of publishing the book, which meant." negotiating internationally with the book, which meant negotiating and selling all the rights. All that was good. We made a little bit of money in the process. That was good too. But the most, the money is gone. The lesson of publishing Gone Fishing is the lesson of life. All of that, you know, money, 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 all of that was that. What I really gained from Gone Fishing was one of the best friends of my life. You know, like people who read Easy Rollins, they talk about mouse. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know. they, they talk about mouse being the man and how they, you know, the women want mouse, the men want mouse. No, give me Walter Mosley.
3: Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, Paul's right, you know, we were, uh, I mean, Paul's right about the publishing of the book was just great. The, 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 the best experience we had is uh, about a year later, we were traveling around, I don't know what we were doing, we were traveling around, and, and people were saying, you know, black men in, in black bookstores were saying, uh, so, so you guys are still friends? I said, well, yeah. They said, you still like each other? They said, yes. And they said, oh, Okay. You know, that was the, the big thing was, like, could we do, it's not could two black men do business together, it's could we do business together and remain friends, you know, which we did, which is I think was, is, as Paul says, the best thing about it. Also, he's right, I'm on the, the 12th city of a, a 12-city tour, you know, and I'm kind of disheveled and, and disoriented, and not quite disillusioned, but I, but I got to, I forgot about how much I love Baltimore you know I mean really it's like the women are all beautiful it's like walking down the street is great and I'm like wow yeah and and on top of that they're friendly you know like I was talking to this this honor she was like a kid but she was this pretty kid and she was and she was, like, serving me coffee, and, and, and there was a fire engine going down the street, and, and, and she said, you know, you don't know if they're going to a fire or they just want to get someplace, you know? And I was like, wow, she's actually talking to me, you know? It was so nice, you know? And your mayor is great. and She's related to Easy Rollins in some kind of way. I mean, uh, I don't know exactly how. But, but she's wonderful, and, and and the library is certainly great. You know, the library, the library is a really interesting place because the library was the first institution, you know, the community institution in America that stood up against George Bush Jr. Uh, and said, no, we're not going to start reporting on how people read books in our libraries. We're not going to do that. The library, the library is, is, like, really... Oddly, in a way, the like the, the, the first and the last bastions of freedom for us. You know, all of us, you know. You can come in the library and they're, they're going to help you increase your knowledge. They're going to help you read. They're going to help whatever you need. Whatever you, you think that you know, they know it first. So, oh, yeah, we know how those computers work. Oh, yeah, we know where that knowledge lies. We, it, it's, it's a really, it's an extraordinary thing. So, it's a, it's a great thing to be, you know, to have my final, like, reading be at a, a library, you know, filled with beautiful women. You know, it's great. I'm happy. I'm not unhappy. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read uh, from my book. I'm going to read uh, two chapters. I, as I tell everybody always, I, they're short chapters, you know, because I never read for a very long time because, you know, the longer you read, the fewer people buy your book, you know. And that, <laughs> I learned that a long time ago, my first reading. I didn't do it, but a guy next to me did it, you know? After the reading was over, everybody was buying my book and nobody was buying his book. Um, this, I've, I've written, published 43 books. Most of them have been about redemption, either redemption of the main character, the character helping somebody else being redeemed. Even in my nonfiction, I, I you know, hopelessly try to redeem America. It's a hard place to do that, but I try. Uh, but in my one book, this book, this is a book about resurrection. This is a book about resurrection. So when I read the first two chapters, uh, you, may, um, you may say, well, is it a mystery? It is, but it's not in the first two chapters. But I think that all those people who you know, were thinking easy was dead, erroneously, um, will, will now you know, understand his, how he's feeling. And then after that, I'll answer questions um, until they tell me to get down. I came half awake, dead and dreaming. My eyes were open, but I couldn't focus on anything because I was still falling, falling as if the nightmare had followed me from sleep into the waking world. I, I didn't know where I was or where I'd come from, but the bed under me was turning and falling, and I, I was sure, had perished. This sensation was so real, so palpable, that I closed my eyes and moaned. The movement of the bed then took on a temporal quality. Instead of falling, I had become unmoored in time, traveling backward and then forward through a life that was mine and yet, at the same time, foreign to me. I watched my mother dying in the bedroom of our shanty house in New Iberia, Louisiana. She was laid up in a feather bed, a big woman who was trying to catch her breath but couldn't inhale right. It sounded like she was drowning. She was so pretty, I thought. I had once loved her but could no longer raise this feeling in my heart. I might have even smiled as she shuddered under the labor of simple breathing. Then I tumbled into a boxcar peopled by brooding and silent black men. They stared at the boy and he saw from their point of view a scared eight-year-old orphan child looking for companionship in those angry bloodshot eyes. I was no longer that kid but had become those men who couldn't care about another defenseless child orphaned and destined probably to die. I saw myself and wondered, almost idly, if that young son would live to the end of the line. I was surprised to see that he had made it to Fifth Ward, Houston, Texas, stealing oranges, skulking in back alley corners, asking everyone he met if they knew a name, Martin. My grandfather, he said. He learned to speak up and stand straight. He already carried scars that would follow him through life, but he found his grandfather, a hard man who allowed him to sleep on the outside front porch at night. Time picked up speed after that. In an instant, the boy, Ezekiel, was a young man, a fool who signed up for the army for the war. He passed through North Africa, then Italy and France. He fought men and killed them out of reflex and fear. He liberated a concentration camp, a killer opening the gates for the dead and the dying and those left with the image of death permanently imprinted on their souls. I was dying, no, had died. Returning to Houston, the man, no longer weak or afraid, found that most of his friends in that part of town were deceased. Renfro had been slaughtered by a jealous woman named Teresa, who in turn died from alcohol poisoning. Martin killed a white man and then shot himself in the burning shack where the boy had slept on the porch. Minna Rogers, Delphine Montesquieu, Michael Michaels, Big Boy Saunders, and dozens of others all died while the boy-turned-man had survived the greatest war in history. Easy? There was a, a flood rising in the room that was swathed in darkness. My right ankle was shackled to the floor next to the bed, and the water was already up to my ears. I pulled against the chain, but all that did was cause me pain. My ankle hurt like a motherfucker, and the chain would not give. I tried to rise, hoping that I could float to the extent of the bond, that maybe I could keep my nose above water, but somehow I knew that my luck had run out, that death had come in on me while I was distracted by the mountains of evil I had lived through. Just the fact that I could survive such terror made me guilty. And now he was coming up through the floorboards, like he did for my mother. Death. I had followed him through all the years of my life. He dropped bodies in my path as little reminders to me and others that the end of the road was no bed of roses, no kingdom come. It felt as if my whole life was an obstacle course, a slogging journey, trying to catch up with death, trying to get a good look at his face. Easy. And then... Up ahead, on my journey through a past life that no longer belonged to me, I saw his back. The reaper was right there in front of me, carelessly firing a pistol into the night. I could reach out and touch his shoulder. When I did this, he grunted and turned, and I realized that I knew this being this deadly force that had dogged me from the earliest moments of my life. He was well-dressed for any occasion or epoch, smiling Uh, with a gold tooth that had a diamond embedded in it. He was a colored man, not black, but light-skinned and light-eyed, a brother who had littered the road I traveled with so many dead that even he had lost count. Easy! His lips didn't move, but I recognized my name, my true name, not the one my dead father gave me. Raymond Alexander, known as Mouse to his victims and friends alike, smiled at me and shivered in pleasure and fear. Ray, I said, and his smile slowly diminished. He stared at me and shook his head. I almost cried, but then I remembered who I was and what I'd been through. No, man, I said, you can't dismiss me like some school kid. You can't turn your back on me after all these years. He smiled again, and even though I was dead, I felt elation. This emotion was followed by the sense of falling again. There was a broad ocean rippling gently under a partial moon and the execution of a perfect accelerating arc of plummeting downward. A shackle was affixed painfully to my right ankle, but impossibly, Mouse was still standing there in front of me, his expression daring me to do something about the fix I was in. You expect me to fly, motherfucker, I am? Mouse laughed without sound and nodded at me. Easy, wake up. The command was feminine, a nuisance that somehow carried weight. The panorama of my hallucinatory journey called to me. I I wanted to go off with mouse, to to follow the long uh, line of dead black folk, soldiers, and Jews. I I wanted to join the people I killed and the ones I couldn't save. I I wanted to shed my scarred and pain-riddled body. One more breath seemed like too much to bear. Easy, it's time for you to wake up. I tried to open my eyes, but I was a child again, a slave to sleep, needing just two more minutes of rest, but a hand shook my shoulder and little legs came awake through my upper torso and down my spine. It was the pain that opened my eyes. I could see after a fashion, but my vision wasn't proper yet. I, I, I couldn't get a bead on the room I was in, but the beautiful Asian woman sitting beside me on the bed was clear and present as a Catholic priest preparing to give last rites. Instead of incense, there was a mild floral scent of perfume, Lynn, I said. My voice was hoarse and congested, cracking hard enough that I thought that my throat might bleed. I didn't think you were ever going to wake up easy, the Chinese bit part TV actress claimed. I died, I said. She almost responded, but then moved to the chair next to the head of my bed. I I died, right, I said, looking at the lovely Lynn Wa sitting there on the off-white padded chair there next to me. She was wearing a slight and short maroon dress made from fine silk. She crossed her olive legs as if to say, if you don't respond to this, you may very well be dead. (laughs) How are you feeling, Easy, she asked. My vision was still playing tricks on me. I I could see the young woman, but the the room around her was blurred without specific detail or spatial form. I, I said. Lynn smiled and moved toward the edge of the boxy chair. Do you remember what happened, she asked. The question almost brought me to tears. I concentrated so hard that I began to tremble. Lynn took hold of my cold hand and squeezed. It's okay, baby. You had an accident, she said. She smiled. Her teeth were perfect. It was very bad, but but you're pretty much all right. You've been coming in and out of consciousness for the last two months. Don't you remember? No. You will. Is this a hospital? No. The nondescript room behind Lynn got lighter, but I still couldn't make it out. Where? Where? It's the house that Jewel McDonald got you when you were trying to protect your family. How did I get here, Lynn? What what happened? I don't know the whole story easy. Tell me what you do know. The doctor said that when you came to and could talk, we should make sure that you stay calm. I'm calm. I need to know what happened. You were drunk, trying to pass a truck on Highway 1. So you're saying that if I'm not dead, I should be. Everybody thought you were, Lynn said. Uh, Ray got a call from from your son at four in the morning. They found your license on the beach and the registration in the glove compartment of your car. It had crashed into the surf. And I was in the water too? Your body was lost. The driver's side door was torn off. The police told us that you had probably floated out on the tide. So what happened? I I went up to the house with Raymond. Later in the morning, after Christmas Black came to watch the kids, Ray and I drove over to Mama Joe's. The image of the tall black witch woman came up into my mind's eye. Just the thought of her power and magnetism anchored my floating thoughts. What did Joe have to do with it? I was imagining some mystical rite where the witch had made a bargain with the devil to raise the dead. Ray told her that you had died and and he wanted her to perform this funeral ceremony, especially since the body had been washed away. And, And did she agree? She looked Raymond in the eye and grabbed him by both shoulders, Lynn said, still astonished by the act. She even lifted him up on his toes. And all Ray did was stare back. After a minute or so, she let him go and stood up so tall that her head almost touched the roof of that cottage. And she said, your friend is not dead, Raymond. While you're here feeling sorry for yourself, he's out there in pain, near death. Go back to where that accident happened and look for him. Look close. I drove him up to the place where you went off the cliff and he climbed down. He was gone for two hours searching through the hillside and bushes between the big boulders and down along the beach. I just sat there and waited, thinking about how much Ray loved you and how sure Mama Joe was that you had survived. And then, after I knew there was no hope, Raymond came up the side of that mountain with you slung across his back. You know, he's a small man, Ezekiel. You're, You're almost twice his size but he carried you halfway up that steep climb, brought you all the way to the car, and laid you in the back seat like you were a child. Where was I? I asked. Raymond said that when your car hit the first boulder, the door flew off and you were probably thrown free. You fell into these thick bushes. They broke your fall, but they also hid you from view. I I guess the police just figured that you were dead once they saw the car. You've been there for almost a day, so we're suffering from exposure as well as a bad concussion. There came a ripple in the atmosphere between me and Lynn. It felt as if an invisible wall had suddenly come down between us. She was still talking, but I could no longer make out the words. I I wanted to know everything about my death, but I couldn't speak or even gesture, and Lynn was slowly moving backward as if her chair was being drawn away by cables into the depths of the featureless room. As she moved off into the distance, the light lowered, and soon I was, once again, dead and dreaming. Thank you. Okay. Notions, thoughts, ideas, minor criticisms? Yes. No, no, it's over there. (laughs) Okay, all right.
2: Um, I wanted to find out... um, how? What lessons could you provide in reference to uh, writing? What have you learned over these number of years in writing and being able to improve um, your writing? What are you most proud of?
3: What? What am I? Was that last question? What? What, am I,
2: what? What are you most proud of having learned about writing? Well, you know,
3: you know, like as you can tell, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm preoccupied with sex and and I, I think of writing a lot the way I think of sex and so when, when people ask me questions like that I always think about the, Like if, if they're asking me the same question about sex they say, well, you know, after all these years of fucking what are you most proud of? you know, I'm trying to think there was this hernia I got once see, the mayor's gone I can say things like that no you know, um, I, I don't think like that. I mean I, I, I mean, I understand your question. I think it's a valid question. It's just I don't think like that. I, I'm thinking, like, that I love writing, that writing is really important to me, that getting better as a writer is really important. But even though I, I know that this novel uh, uh, technically is better than Devil in a Blue Dress, is really not a better book than Devil in a Blue Dress because, you know, books, books aren't about quality. You know, you know, technique or skill or anything like that—they're about heart, uh, like like most art—and uh, and, and so I'm really I'm really really happy with it, and I'm happy that it's provided me, you know, with, with this you know podium and this microphone and with Paul Coates and with you know my my 23 languages I'm tr- you know translated into and blah 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 you know. But but the thing is, is that it's just it's just great. It's just fun, you know. And that's that's how I feel. Another question? Yes.
0: Yes, good evening. Uh, first, I'd like to thank you. I'm honored to be here. And um, I want to say that I, like many women in the United States or all over the world, have fallen in love with Easy Rollins. <laughs> Absolutely adore him. And I have two questions. One, what... Made you or, or drove you to actually have a series, I mean to keep Easy alive, uh-huh. and, and, and I appreciate the fact that you did, and I hope you continue to keep him alive. And the other is, how do you come up with the titles? Because blonde Faith, I expected her to be so instrumental in Easy 's life, but she didn't play the kind of role that I thought. So how do you come up with the titles?
3: Uh, I, you know, I don't really know about the titles. You know, I, I, I choose them and I, li- I like them. They feel good, so I, so I, I, I choose them. Um, but I can answer the first question. You know, the first question is I, I, I started from the beginning because you know y- you don't belong to history unless you belong to the literature of a, of a culture. You just don't. I mean, if you're in history books to begin with, they lie, and, and secondly, um, nobody reads them. You know, so it's okay because they lied, but nobody read it. But to, to write, a, I wanted to write a series of books about the, that black migration from Texas and Louisiana into Southern California. I wanted to write about those black people, where they lived, how they lived, what happened, because I wanted to be, us to be part of that literature so we don't, don't get forgotten. Um, and, and that was, you know, really the, the only thing. The way I came up with Easy, I was explaining to someone earlier today, I would written... A, uh, I was writing a story, first-person narrative. I didn't know who was talking, but he was talking about, you know, it started off as his name was Raymond, but we called him Mouse because he was small and had sharp features. We could have called him Rat because he, he wasn't really very nice, but we liked him, and so the name Mouse stuck on him. And then later on, you know, uh, he, he, the, the narrator says, well, you know, I'm in love with Mouse's woman, Etta May, and Etta May comes in, and she's looking all good. Mouse comes in, he's dressed better than Etta May, and he looks at the narrator and says, hey, Easy, how you doing? And so I knew Easy's name from that point you know but, you know I, for me writing is a lot unconscious you know and and you you know you figure you know, you've been given all these great gifts by you know by everybody you know by their ancestors and their ancestors and they're all in your head you know and you just keep writing. Next question. He, he, I guess he's deciding on my question who's going to answer. You know, no give, you know, no give it to him give, give it to him uh, absolutely and then after that you can give it to this fellow with the hat over here. Yes.
0: Hi. I am so honored to meet you. I've read most of your books,
3: and then I got lazy and got them on tape, but I am so honored. But, but my, I'm a first, I'm a fan of Mouse. That's my man, Mouse. Easy is number two. That's the other half of the women, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. But then my third one, and I want to know when is he coming back, and that's Leonard McGill. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. I'm, gl- I'm glad I'm glad you like like Leonid. You know I'm g- I like Leonid too. You know, you know Leonid and, and Easy live in, in different um, in different centuries. You know, e- Easy is um, you know Easy lives in a world that's so so well defined by by race, by culture, by misinterpretation of race and culture, by history. You know, and you know so and, and Leonid. He's actually in a, lives in a, in a world defined by class. Every once in a while, he might walk through a door that has race, you know, on it, but that's not the norm. It's, it's kind of unusual. It, it's, it's like the thing that I like to say to people that in the 20th century, if I walk in, go into Detroit, and I meet a young black man, I say, you know, how you doing? And he goes, well, you know, it's tough on a black man in Detroit, and I say, I, I understand what you're talking about. In the 21st century, I go to Detroit to see a young man. I say, how you doing? He goes, you know, it's tough on a brother in, in Detroit. And I say, I understand what you're talking about. But, you know, there's somebody over there in, in Kandahar be happy to do an apartment swap with either one of us. You know? There's a much bigger, more complex world that we have to deal with. That's what Leonid is dealing with. A much larger world. He, 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 he can move a lot for, further, but that gives him a lot more work to do. Yes, sir?
4: I want to thank you um, for, and I know that you mentioned this before, about the importance of African men, black men, and I, in a dignified manner, that you give grace and brilliance to everyday average brothers that sometimes would appear on the surface to be nondescript, but once you delve into their stories, you show Mm -hmm. their brilliance and their grace. Um, I work with folk, young people, individuals incarcerated, those dealing with the disease of addiction, using theater and filmmaking and I always tell them that your story is just as valid as anyone else's Mm -hmm. and it needs to be told and it can be a benefit to other people. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they don't believe that and I share with them um, your writing and that of August Wilson Mm -hmm. and a few other individuals, African men brothers writing and telling their stories and they're touched by that. But I want you to, to, if you could share a little bit more about how you feel about the importance of using literature to show African men, black men, brothers in a dignified and total humanitarian way?
3: Huh, what what can I add to that? Let me see. Um, Some of them is tall. Uh, No, you know, what I'll do is I'll talk to you about my experience. So the the book that Paul Coates published, uh, Gone, "Gone Fishing." Uh, I had written that book and sent it out to a lot of people, and they all sent it back. And they all said it's very good writing, but it's not commercial. And what they meant when they said not commercial is they meant this: white people don't read about black people, black women don't like black men, and black men don't read. So who gonna read your book? You know, that was that, that's what they thought in 1988. Um, but but the interesting thing was. The interesting thing was is that it was off, but it wasn't that far off. That black men would come up to me and they said, "Listen, I, I read. I only read nonfiction. I only read what's true. You know, I don't. I don't read that fiction shit." And 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 you know, of course, we all know that nonfiction lies more than fiction, but that's that's another thing. That's another thing. But, but the reason that black men weren't reading it, like, they would read something like the Scarlet Letter. There are no black people in the Scarlet Letter. But that was the center of the slave trade at the time of the Scarlet Letter. There no black people. They just said, well, let's just leave them out. Or we appear as, as you know, pimps or, or, or best friends or, you know, Shaft or wh- whoever it is that you look at and you say, that's not me. I don't know that guy. I'm not I'm not like him. And, 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 the, and, the, and the thing was just to, just to talk about black men, black male heroes. Not only just black men, but black male heroes. Black men who, like, stand for something, who stand up for something, who say, what? You know, and, you know, you have to listen to them. You know, the, 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 that was what I was, I was talking about. And slowly, over time, you know, black men started coming to my reading, started reading my books. I used to, in the beginning when they come, I said, oh, I, I think you might think I was selling videos here. No, that's over in the other side. <laughs> but, you know, they said, no, 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 man, we know what you're doing, you know. <laughs> but I think, it, the, I think that the, the idea of literature, if you can create a literature that includes your audience, no matter who that audience is, that they're going to benefit because they create more of my story than I do, you know. Yeah. Next yeah. Um, well, he's going over there. But yeah, him and then this guy over here. Yes.
2: Hello. How you doing? Hi, very good. Yourself? Every first
3: of the year, I go to your website to see where you're
2: going to be during
3: the year. I, I can't quite hear you.
2: <coughs>
3: Excuse me. Okay, I can hear you now.
2: Every first of the year, I go to your website to see where you're going to be. Okay. Last Friday. I had said I was gonna go over to DC last night.
3: Through the deluge. Yeah.
2: Connecticut Avenue? Huh? But when I heard about the rain for Monday, I said, well, I'll catch you some other time. Uh huh. Lo and behold, I opened up the Sunday's paper, and there you are. How did that come about?
3: (laughs) How, How did it come about that you opened the Sunday paper? I don't know. You're going to have to ask somebody else that one. How, how did it come about that it wasn't on your website? It, w- it wasn't on my website? No. I'm, I'm very sorry about that. Blame Paul. <laughs> Paul, you, you, you messed up, man. Uh, this this fellow had a, a question.
2: Actually, I had a question and a statement. I remember reading a poem by Langston Hughes called You've Taken My Blues and Gone. Uh-huh. And I think that you've taken that step that Langston Hughes wanted to take and when Langston Hughes said, somebody's got to write a story about me, I think you've taken that torch from Langston Hughes and brought it forward and you've taken, you're speaking about, you're speaking for Langston Hughes and for a lot of other people. So that's my first statement. And the second statement is I noticed from reading this and from other novels that you've been obviously influenced by film noir and what what film noir movies have you been
3: mostly influenced by? That's interesting about, you know, it's not movies mostly, you know, I mean, there's film noir, but there's noir in the thing. So, you know, so you have like The Continental Op by Dashiell Hammett. Uh, you have uh, Chandler's work and later on Ross McDonald's and even more recently, Andrew Vax. Those people, I think, influenced me as far as, 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 as what I was writing um, you know and, and, but, but, the, but film you know I, I watch film and I like film but it doesn't have much of an impact on me I mean I, it has an impact on the way my thoughts are structured but not what my thoughts are yeah. um, there's some questions over here no you have to talk into the thing
0: sorry to say I just discovered you last summer uh-huh. I was in the library, I saw a title, All I Did Was Shoot My Wife.
3: My, yeah, my, my man.
0: No, it said wife.
3: It did? Yes. The book says All I Did Was Shoot My Man. I, I know that. Well. I know that. That's the blues well, song. Then, the blues song is All I Did Was Shoot My Wife. Okay. I, I changed it.
1: So, I'm... Ex- Excuse me.
3: Okay.
0: Um, I spent the whole summer reading your books. I love Leonid McGill. But... Ptolemy Gray blew me away. I love that book. I read Blue Light twice. Oh. I do not know what you were, where you, your head was at. I do not know what you were saying. And I've read it twice, and I, my book club tried to explain it to me,
3: and I still don't get it. <laughs> okay, that's good. I like that. Uh, you know, Ptolemy Gray. Uh, Sam Jackson is making the movie for HBO, so we're going to do that. You know, we're going to do a, a movie of that. That'll be fun. Um, and, you know, Blue Light, I, I wrote Blue Light because, you know, I'm, I'm in no way religious or spiritual. No way. Except I believe that I have a soul, you know. But, like, I can't say anything about it. I just believe it. So I, I wrote Blue Light in order to get as close to the notion of a soul as I possibly could in writing. And that's what the book's about, honestly. It's not about anything else. It was a lot of fun to write, you know. Well, yeah, I, I created a new population of people, but that's just so I could find a soul, you know? I've, you know. Writers are like God. You know, they can do anything, you know. <laughs> hey, you make anything you want. So, like, you know, yeah, I created them, but we'll get you next.
0: Hello, good evening. Really thrilled to see you here.
3: Where, where, where am I looking? I'm
0: way back here. Oh, little okay, short person. Hi. Hi. And I love your work. Even as a white woman, I love your black men. But I did have a question going back to the film thing. I was It's kind of a three-part question. I was wondering, A, what was your reaction to Devil in a Blue Dress? Are there any more films? You mentioned Samuel Jackson. And how did you feel about the Hollywood experience? How did that affect you? Uh,
3: the experience of what? Uh, I don't- Hollywood. Oh, you know, I don't have any trouble with Hollywood. Um, you know, the thing with Hollywood is you just have to not expect anything ever to happen, and you have to not expect to get rich. If you, if you come in with those two, you know, pre-expectations, you, you know, nothing can happen, you know. Because you know, people really, you know, people, they, there's a kind of a desire for you to desire them. And once you desire them, they have you. They don't need you anymore. You know, so, like, uh, I don't really desire them, you know, because I mean, I'm more interested in books than I am in movies. And so, whenever I make a movie, I don't really make much money off of them, but I have lots of fun doing it. Uh, we're also going to try to make a I got a script in for uh, the man in my basement, Anthony Mackie wants to do that and so like, you know, hopefully we're going to be able, we have some people who are interested in investing and, uh, and I love Devil in Blue Jess. I think it's a, it's a wonderful movie you know, I mean, Carl Franklin did a great job and like, that's, you know, that's good cool. could we have a, the, this you're going to ask about the movie, so okay well, you could ask a question
0: I was going to ask about Devil in a Blue Dress.
3: About the movie or the book?
0: The casting.
3: The casting? Well, you know. I
0: thought of Easy Rollins as Clarence Dutton. Uh huh. Rather than Denzel Washington, Charles Dutton. But I know.
3: <laughs> they don't like that. Listen. You think I don't understand? I've read you? so
0: much and see, and seen so much. After you think that, I don't understand?
3: You? What?
0: But I pictured Easy Rollins as
3: as you know, a little rougher, a little bit more country,
0: rather than Denzel
3: Washington. I, I saw him but as I'm, as Danny Glover. Oh, Honestly, no. yeah. No. <laughs> <But you can't. laughs> okay. I have one more question. Here's a lady right here. She has a question. Let's, let's have her ask it. So
0: you said you like books. So what books do you read?
3: You know, I read, uh, I read a lot of science fiction. Uh, I love Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, I read a lot of comic books. Uh, I, I, I uh, read you know, nonfiction. I was, I was talking to last night about having uh, read uh, Einstein's um, uh, biography, the, the most recent biography, which I had so much fun with. The story about Mahalia Jackson is like the, the most fun, you know, like, like when Mahalia Jackson went to Princeton uh, to do a special kind of performance which was being supported by the DAR, but the DAR w- wouldn't let black people stay in the DAR house. And so uh, so... When when Einstein heard up, heard about it, he said, "Well, have Mahalia come stay at my house." You know, he was kind of a dog, you know. And so he said, "Well, get her over here," you know. And so Mahalia Jackson wouldn't stay with, with uh, Albert Einstein, you know. And the next year they invited her back, and they said, "We we cleared it all up. DRs changed all their rules. You can stay there." I said, "Oh no, I'm going to stay with Albert," you know. I, you know, like you know, she knew what was what. Yeah, man, why I want to stay with them women? Sure, you know. But but uh, but anyway, thank you very much. I- I'm told that I have to not answer any more questions and start signing books. So that's what I'm going to do.
0: Thank you, Mr. Mosley. Thank all of you for coming. The books are being sold by Mahogany over there, and you can line up over here. Thank you so much for coming.